The thing I know about these ladies is that they're soul winners and that they love Jesus with all of their hearts. And you can hear that in the music. Thank you, ladies. Well, I want to take a moment to introduce our speaker, but you already know him if you've been attending the meetings each morning. Um, I affectionately call him Scotty. I'm sorry. I know it's more formal to call you Scott. You can call me Scott. But I don't know you as Scott. I know you as Scotty. Several years ago, and it's amazing how time flies, but you still look the same to me. Hallelujah. <laughs> we had worked together in the greater Detroit area. I was um, an evangelist at the time, and um, Scotty and a team of guys came in. And um, one thing I can say about Scotty, and if you know me, you know what I value the most is a relationship with Jesus, and that equates you love souls and you want to win people to Christ. And I know that Scotty is that man. He loves the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and all of his mind. And I know for a fact that he's a soul winner. And I know that we're going to be blessed today as he comes up and shares with us a wonderful message from Jesus. And he's going to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to get started. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much, Steve. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege for us to be able to worship you this morning as a group of people. Lord, we have had our time with you already personally, and now we have gathered together with a host of the heavenly angels for the purpose of worshiping Jesus. We ask that our worship will be as sweet as that song, as melodic as the piano, and that our hearts will be brought closer to you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll tell you what I remember about Steve Vale. He says to uh, Nathan Renner now one time, why don't you come go mountain biking with me? And uh, I hadn't been bicycle riding in years, and I about died that day. And uh, I think that's the day he began calling me Scotty because I appeared as some whipped little whoopersnapper pushing my bicycle up the hill he was at the top of waiting on us. But... Uh, what a joy to know you, brother, and to, I was hoping, there were several people I was hoping I would see when I got here this week, and uh, you and Connie are one of those groups of people, so it's good to see you, and I can't wait to see your other half. Amen. Yeah. Well, we have been on a wonderful journey this week. I want to thank the audiovisual team. How many of you have found yourself late to a meeting and so you're like, well, let me just turn this on in my, in my hotel room and you can watch it on 95 point something on your hotel. Anybody done that? Nope. Oh, one person, one saint. You see, the only people that come to meetings in the morning are the saints. And uh, one saint... Uh, was late at one point, and well, they got to catch it online. So thank you to the AV team. It is no small feat to do what you do and to set up the things you have to set up, and so we appreciate you very much. We have been on a journey this week, and our journey through the book of John has taken us, first of all, we had the introduction to the book of John, and John writes this gospel for the purpose of those who are living at a time when Jesus did not walk the streets. He writes this gospel for people who did not eat with Jesus, who did not drink with Jesus, who did not get to hear Jesus preach. He writes this gospel so that they can know that the Word made flesh, 
that is now in heaven, his word is just as powerful now as it was then. You remember he begins his gospel with the words, in the beginning was the, and the, was with God, and the, was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Then we hop to verse 14 in John chapter 1. It says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, John was there when Jesus ascended to heaven. So no longer is flesh dwelling among us. Flesh has gone to heaven. Jesus is now in the heavenly sanctuary working on our behalf to purify our lives to reflect his glory. Hallelujah. So John's battle when he is writing this gospel is how do I introduce people to Jesus that didn't get to touch him? And so the miracles that John records, there's eight major miracles in the book of John. This week, we only get to hit four of them because we had to consume one of our discussions with the introduction. And so in those major miracles, apart from Jesus spitting in the ground and making the mud to put on the blind man's eyes, it is the word of God spoken. It is the word of Jesus that is spoken that heals everyone in these eight major miracles. John wants you to know that the Word of God is as powerful right now as it was when Jesus was walking on this earth. You and I are going to take our study this morning to John chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 5. We will begin reading in verse... Well, let me just get to John chapter 5. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. Now, remember, John writes this gospel near the end of his life. And John knows that there will be individuals that read his book, that read this letter, that are not Jews. And so he starts it out this way. He says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. Let's go backwards just a little bit. Ah, we're just going to stay where we were. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. He's not writing to an audience that is inherently Jewish. Or else he would have said, there was the Passover, or there was the Feast of Tabernacles, or there was the Feast of whatever. He says, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool which is in the Hebrew tongue called Bethesda having five porches. Let's go to our screen now. For the second generation of believers, Jesus, as revealed in the Word of God through the book of John specifically, overcomes the problem of time. We are going to discover this man had been sick for 38 years, and that 38-year span of time did not hinder the healing power of the Word made flesh. The healing at the Pool of Bethesda tells us that the Word of God takes us from paralysis to activity, and always 
carries the result of moving from fear to courage, from shyness to boldness, from inability to ability. So if you have ever felt shy, if you've ever felt fearful, if you've ever felt unable to do something, then the reason that you're here this morning is because God wants you to know that with God, how many things are possible? All things are possible. The problem of time. We've already covered this. Let's go back to that screen. This is a feast of the Jews. This feast occurs one year after the cleansing of the temple. This feast mentioned by Arrhenius, the anti-Nicene fathers, volume 1, 391, is identified as the Passover feast. This thing will work better once I turn it on. Look at there. This miracle and the subsequent arraignment of Jesus before the Sanhedrin marks the close of Jesus' Judean ministry. The Bible says in John chapter 5 verse 2, Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. This is my brother. He and his family went and toured the Holy Land, and this is a picture of the Pool of Bethesda after many moons of sediment settling on top of it, and um, he really enjoyed his trip there. Anybody ever been over to Israel and seen where Jesus walked? Oh, I bet that's a, a huge treat, right? Haven't done that yet. Here's another picture of that. Another picture of the, the porticos that are there and the arches that shaded the people. This pool measured approximately 55 foot by 12 foot. Currently, there's an adjacent church to the pool called the Church of St. Anne. My brother said the, the acoustics in the church were awesome. There is an airport somewhere that I think it's in Amsterdam that we frequented when we were traveling quite a bit, and you could stand in one place underneath this dome-shaped structure in the roof, and you could hear when, when like four people started singing in harmony, you could hear every part distinctly. It was, it was amazing amazing that people would stop and listen, but anyway, that was lots of fun to do that right in the middle of an airport. The Bible says this, verse 3, in these, in these porches lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered. Then it says, waiting for the water, the moving of the water, verse 4, for an angel of the, went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whoso then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made hold of whatsoever disease he had. Those without any earthly hope were forced by their own circumstance to place their hope in a mysterious moving of the water where only the strongest had hope of receiving, quote, the blessing of being healed. These verses, the rest of verse 3 that we quoted already, we read it, waiting for the moving of the water, and then all of verse 4 seem to have been added by a scribe at a later date in order to explain things that happen later in the chapter, and we will get to that. So, here's these individuals, many of whom, for many of whom, it is impossible for them to get to the water. 
They're waiting for this mysterious uh, jiggling of the water, and then whichever one gets in there first gets to be healed. Now, does that sound like a method that the God that you know would use to heal someone? Not at all. As a matter of fact, when Jesus comes into this situation and he sees these people laying at the pool of Bethesda, what day of the week is this? This is Sabbath. Now, you talk about temptation. We, we think that we as human beings have temptation. You know, Jesus suffered temptation that you and I will never know. Because when Jesus walked into this area called the Pool of Bethesda, his temptation was to heal every person there. And he had the power to do it. His temptation was to be God. The Bible says that he laid aside his divinity and took upon himself humanity. Jesus was tempted in ways that you and I will never know to an extent that we will never experience. Jesus was tempted to be who he was and he couldn't because that was not his mission. The Bible continues here in verse 3. Or Tertullian, let's go back to the screen. We have a, uh, a historian that's going to mention this. Tertullian mentions this uh, moving of the water as a legend in the personal notes that he wrote. The rest of verse 3 and 4 were added to help explain verse 7. Let's go to verse 7. Verse 7 says, the impotent man answered him, Jesus had asked him a question, sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. So it is believed then that the last half of verse 3 and verse 4 were added to help explain the answer of the wounded man or the impotent man, the man that could not walk, the man that could not move. It was, it's believed that that was added to help explain what he said. <clears throat> verse 5, a certain man was there which had an infirmity 38 years. Now, I used to have the privilege of preaching that this man had been sick longer than I had been alive. I can't do that anymore. Uh, Passed that up. Haven't been able to preach that for quite a few years now. This man had been sick for 38 years. So, several months ago, I have no idea what I did, but something happened in my right ankle. Now, two, for the last several months, I think it's because I got a new pair of shoes and they're just not the right kind. I bought the cheap ones at Walmart I should not have. But they were farm shoes. Those are the kinds you're supposed to buy cheap and mess up. But my right ankle, for some reason, does not want to bend as much as it did. And I was walking down the stairs this morning to get here. Do you ever talk to yourself, anybody? Are you rough on yourself? By the way, until you can be nice to you, you will never be nice to somebody else. So you and I, need a, we need a lot of work on our own personalities to be kinder to ourselves. And so as I was walking down those steps, I said to myself, self, you have got to do something about that foot. 
Because we, we probably, uh, taking care of my wife's farm, we probably walk about five miles a day. I mean, it's no, it's no small task, all the moving that we do. We carry heavy buckets of food. We carry bags of food. Praise the Lord for the hydraulics of the tractor. Anybody have a tractor? You can say amen to that statement. This man had been sick for 38 years. 38 years of not being able to move, of not being able to take care of himself. I would imagine that on occasion, maybe a brother or a sister who didn't feel so obligated to Jewish tradition would come along and dress his wounds. You know anybody that's been in bed for more than a year that has a bed sore? Yeah, this guy was not in a good condition. You know somebody that has to be rolled over because they can't roll themselves over? This guy was not in a good condition. And anybody that would come by and clean his wounds or touch him or minister to him would be unclean according to tradition and the Old Testament writings. And so this man, not only had he been sick for 38 years, you and I can imagine very correctly that he had been alone for that length of time. I mean, his best friends were in conditions similar to his own. You know, birds of a feather, what happens? They flock together. This guy had friends that were uh, maimed. He, there, there were probably people missing arms. Some of them probably had gangrene. And when that set in, they were like, you know, he doesn't have much time. Let's see if we can help him get to the water the next time that it moves. Where, pray tell, was their faith in the God of heaven? Did the leadership of their community, the religious leaders of their community, did they not care about the condition of these people? The Bible tells us in the Old Testament that when Jesus comes, he would minister to those that are sick. He would visit those in prison. He would heal those that were sick. Why weren't the authorities in that day doing it? Could it be because they had lost sight of the God that they served and had simply begun to serve the rules? You know, it's easy for us as Christians to fall in love with Jesus and in, as our relationship with Jesus continues and deepens, it's easy for us to take our eyes off of Jesus and to put our eyes on the actions of others. Let's suppose that, let's suppose that uh, someone that you know uh, has not served the Lord Jesus for any of their lives. And you make a visit to their home on their deathbed, and you say to them, I need, actually need to move over here because we're going to back up in this illustration. Uh, you say to that individual, is it your desire to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And that individual on their deathbed says, yes, I haven't served him all of my life. I want to serve Jesus. Would you say that that individual is saved? Would you say that individual was lost? Would you participate in a morning presentation at all? Would you say that that individual that professes to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to accept him as their personal savior, would you say that that individual is saved? Of course you would. What about if that individual said it 10 minutes before they died? 
That individual confesses the Lord Jesus Christ. They labor with their breathing for, for minutes and minutes, and eventually they die. Would you say that that individual that confesses Jesus 10 minutes before they have died is saved? What about that person 10 days before they die? If that person 10 days before they die make a confession of faith and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, their soon coming King, their high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, would you say that that person 10 days before death is saved? What about 10 years? What about 20 years? What if they fail between their profession and their death? What if they do not live up to all that they know to be true? Would you still say that person is saved? <laughs> I'll leave that with God. You see, this is the issue with us, my friends. We think that the problem of time is too big of a problem for God to overcome. If God is able to save someone one moment before they breathe their last, or 10 minutes, or 10 days, or 10 years, or 20 years, where, pray tell, do we get the platform upon which we stand that says whether that person is lost or saved? Dear heart, salvation is God's work. Condemnation is God's, condem, let me take that back. Let me take judgment is God's work. The Bible says in Matthew 7, 7, condemn not. Actually, it uses the word judge. The better translation would be condemn. Judge not lest ye be judged. For with what manner of judgment you judge each other, you will be judged yourself. Whatever standard you are putting someone else up against is the standard by which you yourself will be judged. And quite frankly, the thing that we despise the most about what other people are doing is what we ourselves do and we're struggling with and we can't get rid of it in our lives. You, you think about it for a moment. The person that just drives you absolutely bonkers. What, it is it, what is it about that person that drives you absolutely bonkers? And once you have identified that, ask yourself, do I have that in my personality as well? The answer, 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent of the time is yes. You see, my friends, Jesus died on a cross approximately 2,000 plus years ago so that those that believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus did not, capital N-O-T, upside down exclamation mark, right side up exclamation mark. Jesus did not, John 3, 17, come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. When you and I have a spirit of condemnation in our hearts for other people, we are not displaying the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are displaying the spirit of his arch enemy, and that is Satan himself. If Jesus did not come to condemn, then where, pray tell, do we get the platform upon which to determine whether somebody is living in a right relationship with God or not? There is a difference between discernment and condemnation. You and I are able to exercise discernment, but not until we love that individual more than we love ourselves. And if we're still hard on ourselves, we have no platform upon which to condemn that other person or to have a conversation with that other person. Wouldn't you have loved to just hung out with Jesus? Man, to just be in the presence of someone that you knew did not condemn you, 
Put yourself in the the place of that young lady in John chapter 8. She's been caught in adultery. And Jesus doesn't say a word. He just writes in the sand. And all of a sudden, these accusers are gone. and, And this lady, he says, woman, where are those that have been accusing you that wanted you to die? And she says, I don't know. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. Was she guilty? As sin itself, had she broken the law? She had. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus did not come into this world to condemn the world. And so Jesus is here at this pool of Bethesda and he finds the most miserable case. Remember, his temptation is to heal them all. A greater temptation than you and I could ever experience. And instead of healing them all because it would have damaged the rest of his opportunity to minister as the Messiah in the Messiah's promised land, he chooses the worst case. The Bible says that this man had been sick for 38 years. Verse 6 says this, when Jesus saw him lie in that condition... Knowing that he had been now a long time in that case, he said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? I've eaten breakfast with the same long, white-haired, white-bearded, bandana-surrounded uh, uh, sort of uh, Native American Indian dress necklace on. I've eaten breakfast with the same man this week, uh, every day this week. And uh, if I asked him, would you like Jesus to heal you, what do you think he would say? What would you say, brother? This is a no-brainer question. This man has been sick for how long? 38 years. You think he's ever tried to get to the water when the wind blew across it? You bet your bottom dollar he's tried to get to that water. He's even done what other people are now doing to him. When he could still crawl, pulling himself with his elbows, he would crawl over other people in order to get to that water. But he never made it there first. And so Jesus stands over him and says, do you want to be made whole? Can't you just picture the situation where he says, no, man, go to somebody else. This is a no-brainer question. Do you want to be made whole? And this guy who wants to be made whole begins to make excuses as to why he cannot be made whole. Now, Jesus performed, let's go to the slides. Jesus performed his miracles for specific reasons. Number one, his works were all for the good of others and contributed materially and spiritually to their welfare. Their physical health and spiritual health were Jesus' motivation for healing them. Number two, his miracles illustrate spiritual truths. For instance, in Mark chapter 2, verses 9 through to 11, in Capernaum, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. He's first cured of spiritual paralysis. You will remember what Jesus said to this man who's been lowered down by his friends. Jesus says, son, your sins have been forgiven you. Jesus, who reads the heart, knows what we need. 
and then all of the, the people in, that were supposed to be the religious leaders. You have to forgive me, I'm exposed to chickens on a routine basis. Um, Jesus, who, who is, has told this man that his sins are forgiven, is then accused of blasphemy. And Jesus says, is it easier to say that a man's sins are forgiven or to tell a man that had to be brought in here by his four friends, rise, take up your bed and walk? You answer that question. What's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to tell a, a man that can't walk to get up and walk? What's easier? Your sins are forgiven. Then Jesus says, so that you know, you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, rise, take up your bed, and walk. That fella did not get carried there so that he could be healed and walk again. His heart's cry was that God would forgive him for the sin that had put him in that condition. And Jesus ministered to his need. And then because other people doubted that Jesus had the power to do that, then Jesus heals this individual. Sometimes we go to the hospital, we go to hospice, we go to the living rooms of individuals, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray that God is going to get this person off of their deathbed. And many times we do that with little to no faith that it will happen. What about their spiritual life. So often we focus on what is good for now, what is good for this 60, 70, 80, 90, if God blesses a hundred years. We focus on this rather than on the line of eternity that spans throughout the ceaseless ages of the future, the time when we can spend with Jesus. My dad, I know I've mentioned this every day, but this is, those of you that have lost parents, you know it's, it's hard, right? I mean, even if you didn't have a good relationship with him, it's hard. I had a great relationship with my dad. My dad, before he had his three strokes and then was bedridden, we talked every day of the week. Uh, I'd be driving somewhere. Hey, dad, what's up? Hey, boy, because that's what they call you when you're from Alabama. Doesn't matter who your mom and daddy was. Everybody called you boy. Hey, boy. And sort of like, listen, that old Western. Hey, boy. <laughs> I forget what that Western was called. Well, what are you doing, dad? Oh, just driving around, picking up cars, making a living. What are you doing, Scott? Driving around, picking up souls, making a living. It's hard to lose somebody that you love. My dad, probably a month before he died, I had privilege to sit down with him. I'd, Steve, I took off my pastoral hat, took it off. I said, Dad, forget that I'm a pastor right now. Just, just forget that. I'm your boy. He said, Scotty, you've always been my boy. That's where it comes from is my daddy, by the way. David Asherick did not nickname me Scotty. My daddy did. And... Um, I was named after a song called God and I Watching Scotty Grow. <laughs> How fun is that? I don't even know that I've ever heard it, but that's what they tell me. I said, Dad, I want to spend eternity with you. He said, Scotty, I'm all right with the Lord. I've, I've made my peace with the Lord. I've asked him to forgive me for everything I can remember that I ever did wrong. He said, I've watched things I shouldn't have watched. I listened to things I shouldn't have listened to. I went to places I shouldn't have gone. And I've tried to remember them all and ask him to forgive me for them. He said, uh, I sit in here in this room and I, I, I praise the Lord that TV's got something good on it. I watched 3ABN, probably his favorite was kids' time. 
Not because he lost his mind. He didn't. He was there. Uh, there were times he weren't, wasn't, but that's not what took him. And I said, Dad, I just, I just really want to spend eternity with you. Then I got to tell him how much I loved him. I got to tell him how much he meant to me, how much he had influenced my life. In my daily duties, not one day goes by where I don't think, how would Dad have done this? Like, I love auto mechanic work. I love working on the tractor. I love working on, I love welding. I love cutting things. I love constructing things. I love working with wood. Those are all things that my dad knew how to do. And I think to myself, how would dad have done this? And then when, uh, when I was growing up and I would say, hey, dad, why don't we fix this car this way? He'd say, boy, that's a backyard mechanic way of fixing something. We got to fix it right. And so then it, nowadays when I'm doing something for the, the farm or doing something for a church member, I'm thinking, how can we do this to the best of our ability? My dad has influenced my life to the nth degree. And near the end of that conversation, he said, Scott, we got to stop. I said, why do we have to stop? He said, because it feels like we're at my funeral. I said, Dad, all of these are the things that I will try to say at your funeral, and I don't think I'll get, I don't think I'll get through it. Remind me to tell you a story about how my brother helped me get through a song at my dad's funeral. Jesus performed miracles to heal people spiritually. And then if that need was there for a physical healing, he added it for the glory of the kingdom of God. So Jesus first cures individuals of spiritual paralysis and then physical paralysis. We're going back to the screen now. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man, and he receives spiritual first and then physical eyesight. The raising of Lazarus demonstrated Christ's power to impart life to all that believed in him. Jesus' miracles testified to his divine mission as the Savior of mankind and attested to the truth of his message. Nicodemus, in that clandestine meeting there in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus by night and he says, we know that you are come from God for no man can do these miracles except God be with him. The miracles of Jesus gave uh, truth to the fact that he was divine. That's just a summary. We'll go now to John chapter 5 and verse 7. John chapter 5 verse 7, the impotent man, the man that had been sick for 38 years, the man who might have even had a stroke while he was laying there, the man that had bed sores, the man whose family had stopped visiting him in the nursing home at the pool of Bethesda. That man said, sir, notice the excuses, I have no man. Who's the first person you call when you get sick? Who? <laughs> My mom. Somebody's like, make me some chicken noodle soup, please. With McKay's chicken seasoning, of course. The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. 
This man who's laying there in physical misery. Let's go back to our slide. This man is physically miserable. He's been deserted by his friends. He has had repeated revival of hope and continued disappointment. His hope was in a miracle of water when the water of life was standing directly in front of him. Jesus says, will you be made whole? I have no man. Another steps down before me. This is not how God works. God doesn't just trouble the water so that you can clamor over the sickest of the sick. Another steps down before me. Would God set up a system of healing that would require you to get to a specific level before he would heal you? The answer is no. My friends, we look at this guy that's been sick for 38 years and we say, poor fella. Poor fella, I have to be sick for that long. That's just sad. Yet some of us have been carrying bitterness around longer than that. Some of us have issues between ourselves and our siblings. Maybe you want to make it right and they don't, or they want to make it right and you don't. We look at this guy that's been sick for 38 years and we say, poor fella, when we ourselves have been holding on to anger and unforgiveness, and I get that there are things that it is hard to forgive people for. There are things that it is hard. You don't have to forget it. It's hard to let go of that familiar feeling of anger and frustration and bitterness because that individual hurt you. And so you cling to it because it's familiar. You hang on to it because that's been your lifeline. We look at this guy that's been sick for 38 years and we say, poor fellow. Maybe it's time we just look at our own life and we say, you know what? Poor fellow. All these excuses he gives And all these excuses we give, all these reasons why he can't get healing, and we give all of these reasons why it wouldn't be right to forgive that person. Do you know Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Other places in the New Testament, if you do not forgive each other, then how can the Father in heaven forgive you of your sins? I think it's time that we stop looking at this guy and saying, poor fella. And we look at this guy and say, praise Jesus that he encountered the healer. We are Christians We are Christians of a particular type. We are Christians that believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. We are individuals that believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We are Christians that believe that Jesus came and lived on this earth approximately 33 years. We are Christians that believe that Jesus ascended into the heavenly sanctuary there to minister for humanity. We believe that Jesus is our soon coming king. When did we stop believing that Jesus could heal our broken heart? You know, my wife on our farm, uh, they collect between 350 to 500 eggs a day. And, uh, you know, it amazes me that the only way 
to get that egg to benefit anyone is to break it. You following the illustration, right? The only way to get that egg to benefit anyone is to break it. The baby chick has to break it to get out, and that benefits the farmer. He's got another chicken. The person that wants sunny side up has to break it carefully so the yolk doesn't break. If you're getting a farm fresh egg, it's hardly ever going to break. God is willing to take our brokenness and to use it for his good. You think that you're damaged because of what happened to you in the past. You think that God forsook you during that time of your life. You think that God just wasn't there. God will take that brokenness, and if you will let him, he will put the salve of the love of Jesus all over that broken part of your life. And he will use it to help someone else. In our particular genre of Christianity, we think that there is more merit in looking perfect than there is in admitting that we are faulty and struggling together through our own faults. God is not looking, and maybe I'll get fired for this, He's not looking for a perfect church. God is looking for a willing church. The Bible says in the book of 2 Corinthians, if there first be a willing mind, it is accepted of God as if a man has already accomplished what he set out to do. God wants your mind. At this point, God did not have the man at the pool of Bethesda's mind. All he could think about were the excuses. All he could think about were the hurts. All he could think about is that his family hadn't visited him. His, his mom hadn't come by. His brother hadn't come by. His sister hadn't come by. Not even his nieces and nephews that he used to throw the rocks on the, 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 the lake with, they stopped coming by because the stigma was too bad. All he can think of are the excuses. When the excuse breaker was standing in front of him, he wanted the water of the pool and the water of life was ready to pour into his own Jesus says to him in verse 8, Jesus says to him in verse 8, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, Jesus did not ask this man to exercise faith in what he said. He just commanded the man to do something. The man had the opportunity to refuse. He did not. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, the fifth chapter. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. I want to ima- you to imagine that you are the man at the pool of Bethesda. And the issue with you is not that you can't get up and walk. The issue with you is that you are sinful. The Bible says this in Romans 5 and verse 6, for when we were yet without strength, at that time Christ died for the ungodly. Did Christ die for the godly? Okay, my question, according to this verse, did Christ die for the godly? No, Jesus would put it this way, I did not come to, to, to heal the whole, but to heal the who? To heal the sick, 
to heal those that had a need. When you and I were without Christ or without strength, at that time, Christ died for us. Those people that we look out and th- look at and we think, whoo, somebody that's loaded up with all those tattoos, how, pray tell, is God going to save that person? Don't you know in Leviticus, blah, 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 it says don't paint your bodies? Oh, my lands. There's a lot of lost people walking around. Don't tell me that you haven't thought things like that. Somebody comes along, they got sleeves all over their arms, and it's not long sleeves, it's tattooed sleeves, and we think, oh, mercy, I wonder what kind of drugs they are on. We are so quick to judge and so slow to hear the heart speak. The reality is if we would pause long enough to have conversations with individuals that strike us as unique and different from us, we would find that there is lots of common ground upon which you and I can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hurting people are healed by other hurting people. And if we pretend to be so high and lofty and, and uh, so better than now, how, pray tell, are we going to reach those people that Jesus came to seek and to save? How are we going to do it? Like, I had the best time, Steve. We held a funeral for a um, non-Adventist man. I'm not going to go into the whole story, but uh, I'm at a place where he is, and he shares Uh, that his mom is dying. She's just gone into hospice. I said, who's going to minister to your family while your mom is in hospice? He says, what are you talking about? Long story short, we held his mom's funeral in our church. Our church catered a meal. Watch this. That wasn't vegan. That had caffeinated coffee. Because there was a group of people that needed to be ministered to where they were. Our head deaconess says, Pastor, I can do this. I just can't go to the ham. I said, okay, leave the ham off. These people come to our church after the funeral is over. Um, We go into the fellowship hall. Steve, Melanie, and I sit. Melanie's my wife. We sit down with two guys at this round table in the fellowship hall of our church. These guys have not been in church in years. By their own confession, they have not been in church in years. And we say, so what do you guys do for your hobbies? They say, we drink beer. You know what I said? What's your favorite flavor? Do you like it off the tap or do you like it out of a can? Do you prefer a cold bottle? Tell me about your beer drinking. Tell me, when do you drink the most beer? I was so in to what those guys wanted to share with me. They were headed the following week to Daytona. I said, what are you going to do in Daytona? They said, we're going to get drunk the first day we get there, and we're not going to remember a thing until three days after we get home. I said, who's going to bring you home? They said, we usually don't even know who gets us there. And then they said, you know, you're asking all these questions about us, like why would, you, why would you host a funeral like this in a nice place like this for people that you don't even know very well? I said, okay, here we go, Lord. I said, because we love Jesus, and Jesus loves everybody, which means that we love you. No matter how much beer you drink, no matter how much you remember, I just praise the Lord that you're sober today and you're never going to forget that you came into a church that wanted to minister to your friends who had a need. These guys said, and these were boot stomping, dirty boots. These were blue jeans, pearl button shirt, Stetson hat guys. And they said, you know what? If we ever do go to church, we're coming over here. My friends, we have got to 
connect with people in order to share the gospel. Like there are people that run that I'll never be able to connect with because I don't run. But I know people that run. And I say, why don't you get together with so-and-so next week? They run every Sunday morning at such and such a time. We have got to step off of the pedestal that we are on. And we've got to mingle with the same people that Jesus was accused of mingling with, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners that were the worst of the worst. That's who Jesus wanted to be around because Jesus wanted to connect with those people and let, him know, let them know that they were loved by God. Amen. Chapter... Five, you're still there in chapter five. Look at verse eight. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, we're in Romans 5, 8. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The prerequisite for Jesus dying for you is that you be a sinner. The very moment that you feel that you have arrived is the very moment that you feel that you no longer need the Lord Jesus Christ. God forbid that we get to that position. We look at other people that are just starting out in their Christian walk and we say, oh, bless their hearts. They've got so much to learn. I need to invite them over to lunch and let's just get this over with right now. Man, I'll tell you, when, when the Lord Jesus got a hold of my heart, there was this couple, Mark and Stephanie Howard. They said, Scott, why don't you come over to our house for lunch? And I'm brand spanking new. I'm still this pepperoni eating, this uh, fire drinking fella. Why don't you come over to our house for lunch? And I was a bachelor. That sounded really good, a home-cooked meal, sitting down with the family, and uh, so I went over to their house, and bless her heart, I, she said a word I'd never heard before. She said, vegan. I was like, girl, this is home cooked. I don't care what you call it. <laughs> they didn't tell me I had to eat that way. They didn't tell me I had to give up the drinking. They didn't tell me that I had to give up the occasional cigar. They just loved me. They loved me with all of their heart. I said things that they just had to cover their precious little boy's ears. They had to cover it up. One day, I pray the Lord just drops the wife in my lap. And boom, Stephanie covers up her boy's ears. I was like, what did I say wrong? She's like, that ain't the right thing to say. I was rough, but they loved me. And they loved me so much that the Lord Jesus just ignited again this, this desire in my heart to serve him. And I'll tell you, my friends, I met Mark Howard and Stephanie Howard in 1998, and they encouraged me, and I've been serving Jesus ever since. I went from beer drinking, bar hopping, crazy stupidity, nonsense, disgusting, yucky life where I was only living for me, to giving Bible studies to my neighbors that I used to drink with. What happened to him? The same thing that happened to the lady that was at the pool, that was at the well in John chapter four. They met Jesus. Amen. Oh, Jesus tells of this guy. He says, let's go back now to John chapter five. John chapter five. And verse 8, Jesus said to this man, rise, 
Take up your bed and walk. There's no asking for faith. There's no asking this man to do anything other than the very impossible thing he had been trying to do for 38 years. Right now, my friends, think of that thing in your life that you've been trying to rid yourself of for 30, 40, 50, 60 plus years. Four Sabbaths ago, I preached a sermon on patience. And I, I, I service two churches. I get to pastor two churches. And so I drive from Leesburg, Florida, 12 and a half minutes to Lady Lake, Florida, and then I preach up in Lady Lake as well. And in that 12 and a half minute drive after preaching on patience, I get in the truck and typically I pray from one church to the next. And I said, Lord, why am I still struggling with patience? And you know what the Lord impressed me with? It was no audible voice, but the Lord impressed me with this. I don't struggle with patience. Why don't you let me just be in charge of your patience? And so I said, okay, Lord, you are now in charge of my patience. You get to live your patient life through mine. I completely give you permission. I lay my impatience aside, and I ask you to take over. Now, the reason that I was concerned about patience is because my wife and my daughter had been telling me on a habitual basis, Dad, honey, Scott, you're being impatient. I'm like, I'm not being impatient. I just want to get the job done, and I need it done done now. Let's get it done. We've got other things to do. That's not impatience. That's called being focused. No, that's called impatience. Dad, I don't like it when you're impatient. Well, maybe it's time you change your attitude about whatever you think I'm doing. It's not impatient. And so that Sabbath morning, seriously, driving that Dodge Ram 2500 from one church to the next church, watching the gas gauge go down, I said to the Lord Jesus, you can have that part of my life. So on Sunday morning, which is a very busy day on that farm, we wake up. I eat breakfast at the table, which is rare for breakfast. It's usually a breakfast bar out the door. See you girls when you get outside. My daughter comes down to the barn. We take care of the brooders. I don't lose it. I'm thinking to myself, what pray tells going on here, Lord? This is weird. We finish doing what we need to do at the barn. We load up the feed trailer and we go out into the field. We get done in the same amount of time as we normally do when I'm impatient or whatever it is I am. And my wife and daughter said to me at the end of that, they said, what happened to you? I said, I don't know. Except in that drive between Lady Lake, from Leesburg and Lady Lake yesterday, I figured if I was going to preach that the Lord could help us with patience, that I better let him help me. Boy, I made it. Went Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Would you believe, Steve, I lost it on Friday, the day before the Sabbath. I apologized to my girls. I'm going to tell you the Lord has taken over impatience for me. This guy was sick for 38 years. Jesus does not ask him to exercise faith at all. He simply commands him to get up and walk. The Bible says, verse 9, and immediately the man who was made whole took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. 
My friends, understand this and understand it well, no matter what you've been wrestling with for year upon year upon year, it is time. Now is the time. Today is the day. This moment is the moment where you and I give that struggle, where you and I give that bitterness, we give that hatred, we give that angst, we give that jealousy, we give that emotion that we know was given by God but is abused by us. It is time that we give that to the Lord Jesus Christ and we say, okay, Lord, you live your life through me. The man at the pool of Bethesda could not walk for 38 years and when Jesus commanded that he walk, he walked. You've been wrestling for a long time and today Jesus commands you. The word made flesh is commanding you to get up and walk. Walk away from it and let him have it. Is it your desire this morning to hold out your hand? With the other hand, put whatever you know does not glorify the Lord Jesus. Put it in your hand. Go ahead. I mean, maybe you're perfect. Maybe you need to put your perfection in your hand. And you say to the Lord Jesus, okay, I love that thing, but I want you to take it. If that's the case, would you just hold that up to the Lord? Just hold it up. Let him have it. My friends, you are living in freedom. You are arising. You are taking up your bed and you are walking. It's over. When it happens again and when you fail, give it to him again. It'll get easier and less frequent for you taking it back. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for the gift of salvation that has been given to us in the life of Jesus. That gift that we so frequently deny other people. Lord Jesus, take our faults, take our brokenness, and use that brokenness to heal other people. Give us the courage to be honest about our lives. And may other people, many, many people within our own spheres, within our own work circles, our own Bible study classes, may many people come to understand that in Jesus there is true freedom. This we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Hallelujah. Well, guys, that concludes. I always feel like I'm a funeral director at this moment. This concludes our service here in this building. Uh, if you'll make your way to the back now, you can progress and go to your following classes. Please take note on the outside of the building that there are some uh, handwritten notes indicating that some of your classrooms have changed. You want to make sure of that because if you walk all the way to the far end of the road and discover that there's a sign down there identical to the sign out here and you have to walk all the way back over here, at least you could praise the Lord for the beautiful flowers and the exercise, but you will be late. So uh, God bless you, my friends. Enjoy your day. Invite a friend for tomorrow morning. It's going to be miraculous.